Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. Advertising is something we're all exposed to in our day-to-day lives, and this includes advertising by health practitioners for their services. So in today's episode, we'll discuss some of the risks, some of the opportunities and nuances of advertising for regulated health services. What should we as members of the public think about with the advertising we're exposed to? And for practitioners, what is appropriate advertising and why is it important to get it right? Our guests today bring extensive experience of considering this issue from both a practitioner and a public perspective. So we welcome Anne Burgess. I'm a community member on the Chiropractic Board of Australia. Dr. Dominic Awad. I'm a private practitioner dentist in Sydney, and I also have a master's in business administration and provide education on compliance and regulation. And Ruan Brell. I'm a lawyer at Avant, Australia's largest medical defence organisation. So we provide advice to our practitioners and practices about many issues, including advertising. And we also participate in educating our members about different aspects that affect the way that they practice. Excellent. So we might start off with talking about how is advertising for health services relevant to members of the public? Advertising helps the public um, find out where services are. Um, It's really useful in knowing um, what's being provided in what areas. Um, Really important things like contact numbers, um, the hours that the um, service is open for, where there's parking, um, and um, how to do how to book for a service um, and what the waiting times might be. These are all really useful things that people rely on day by day um, in finding out about the, the health services in their region. Thanks, Anne. So this may seem like an obvious question, but um, why do health practitioners choose to advertise their services? Ruan? Susan, I think for all those reasons that Anne just mentioned, Obviously, health practitioners and practices are like any other business in wanting to reach their, their patients and potential patients. It's a really great way of letting them know about the services they offer, what might be available, and, and also used to sort of educate them about what, what treatments or options there may be available that, that people may not be aware of. Why is it important to regulate how advertising is done? Anne? So I think that members of the public um, pick and choose between health services um, and make decisions on the basis of what they think is going to be important to them. Um, But on the other hand, I think at times we're all really vulnerable, all of us at times. It might be um, that we've had um, conventional treatment um, and... um, and nothing's worked for us. Um, And we're drawn in um, by advertising um, that might make false claims. Um, You know, if you've been up all night with a a child who's been screaming um, and you see an ad where somebody says, um, I can treat bedwetting or colic or whatever with manual therapy, um, you know, you think, I'll give it a try. So I think um, in protecting the public from false and misleading claims, it's really important um, that there's some regulation 
behind that. When advertising a healthcare, particularly, I think it's very important not to bias the decision making by the uh, the patient. And I'll, I'll use an example in my industry. For example, if if dentists were advertising buy one crown get one free, you'd have patients requesting two crowns, when in actual fact none may be required. So I think responsible advertising, uh, particularly for a, a health industry, is to make sure that we aren't biasing um, the decision-making process and we're not biasing uh, the outcomes that patients want to achieve without fully understanding what's being treated. So that's a really helpful example. And I feel like it highlights the difference in understanding or information that consumers might have. So for example, for me, when I take my car in, I don't know what needs to be fixed under the hood. I don't know what's going on under there. So Anne, what are some of the risks for the public when health practitioners are deceptive in advertising their services? Because we have this trust of health practitioners, if a health practitioner tells us that we need to have extensive treatment, and if you sign up now, um, I can give you um, 30% off uh, for your next three years treatment. Um, As a patient, what I'm thinking is I have a very poor health condition uh, that I need to attend um, a practitioner maybe twice a week for the next um, eight years or whatever it might be. That's an, you know, that's an extreme example, but it happens on a day-by-day basis in terms of smaller examples. When we go to our health practitioner, we expect to be told what their view is about what my condition is, what my prognosis is, what my treatment should be, what the evidence shows, um, and um, what is the best pathway forward from that. But in an advertisement, you don't get all that. You just, you just get the bold statement about we can treat, I can treat colic, I can treat bed wetting with manual therapy, I, I can treat um, cancer. Um, here's, here's, um, you know, we use vitamins and it will change your life. Um, and so those are very bold statements without any context, without considering the individual person's um, condition. And that needs to be much, much more closely um, considered. When advertising a health service, uh, there is no medical intervention that doesn't come with both risks and benefits. Um, within the confines of most advertising platforms, it's near impossible to communicate all of the risks and benefits that come with treating any condition. So for any patient, before a decision on treatment type is decided, a clear diagnosis is required. And then once you have a diagnosis, you can then have a conversation regarding all of the risks and benefits. So when we're just talking about treatments, um, then we're not really dealing with what other options there are and what the potential risks could be of that. And I think Dominic makes a really good point there. And I think it recognises the the situation we're in now where the focus of delivering care to patients is very much a patient-centred approach and focusing on the patient, moving away from that paternalistic model in the delivery of care. And I think that's also reflected in advertising because in advertising, you do have a very limited amount of information, but the patient is already starting off from quite a vulnerable position. And as much as 
practitioners do have to earn that trust, as Anne said before, you see it almost through that trust in, in the first instance. And so you believe that that might be something that you need to pursue if you see an advertisement that's got limited information but doesn't, you know, balance those risks or even refer to them in a general way so that you know that it's not as black and white as the advertisement might appear and you need to go in there with some questions and have that conversation that Dominic's talking about. And this is further complicated by the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Do you have some examples of deceptive advertising that we've seen in recent times? I think probably the current COVID situation has actually been, it's probably a really good example of how positive advertising can be in terms of practices and practitioners being able to communicate with patients, be it via their own websites or be it uh, through social media channels that they might use about whether they're closed, whether they're open, what services they might be offering, how to best contact their practice, um, particularly, for example, something like general practice where a lot of practices did shut down or move to telehealth and, and uh, technology consultations quite quickly. It's actually a really good example of where advertising and being able to reach patients is a really positive thing. And that sort of goes back to your earlier question about why they advertise. So having all those structures set up in the first place has meant that they were able to do that quite efficiently and, and reach those patients and enable to inform people in, in what was quite a you know a, a, an overwhelming and unfamiliar and frightening situation for some of their patient cohort. Uh, so following up on that point, on the flip side of that, I think um, at the moment with a lot of the fear around about COVID-19 and, um, uh, and catching COVID-19, uh, there are people who are vulnerable to the sorts of comments um, from manual therapists saying, uh, keep up your immunity by making sure that you um, visit us regularly um, and have regular treatments uh, because that helps your immunity against COVID-19. And as far as I'm aware, there's no, um, no evidence to say that, that that helps. What about social media? Is that, is that advertising? How does that fit into this picture? Social media is advertising. Not all social media is advertising, although I would add that if it's not advertising, there are still other professional consequences and, uh, you know, some obligations that practitioners and practices do need to be aware of. Um, but social media certainly is a form of advertising, much like print media or any of our more traditional methods. So it is important to still follow the, the, um, the law and the guidelines and just be really careful about what you do. It's also the shareability and the reach of social media is really positive, um, but it also means that it's, it gets out there very quickly. Um, so it is one of the areas where I think um, the casual context of social media can maybe allow some of those uh, boundaries and responsible advertising to fall by the wayside or get overlooked a little bit um, and overcome by the sort of the casual nature of the platform or the way that, uh, that other people might be communicating on social media. But we are certainly seeing it being an increasingly popular way of, of reaching, reaching patients and potential patients. APRA also has a really useful uh, piece of guidance about using social media and how to use it responsibly, um, which all practitioners and practices should have a look at and become familiar with. Um, the examples in there, I think, really bring home how the pervasiveness of, of social media in our lives 
often leads us to forget some of those fundamental, what we sometimes call first principles or core principles about, you know, practising and patience, uh, such as confidentiality uh, and, um, and, and that sort of the professionalism as well and that concept of professionalism. And also just remembering that people come in to see a practitioner or visit a practice um, with a lot of other aspects of their life, you know, cultural issues um, and, uh, and, and social or, or other beliefs um, that will influence that, that interaction and that relationship. Um, and when people are publishing on social media or active on social media, it's really important to remember that you don't stop being a registered health practitioner and there are obligations that come with how you do that. Um, while also seeing that social media can be really positive and connecting people and sharing information, um, but just remembering how to do it responsibly and, and recognising, sorry, that power imbalance um, between uh, patients or consumers and, and you as a registered health practitioner. Dominic, is this something that you hear dentists using or have much discussion about? Absolutely. So I think the responsible use of social media is such a wonderful way to interact with your community um, on a public platform. It's a great way of discussing um, health issues or things to look out for uh, with your personal health uh, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. I know that we were advising patients on how to look after their oral health while we weren't open. Uh, so preventative measures you can take or, or ways you can look after yourself. I also think it's a wonderful way in a, in a social responsibility uh, plat platform in a social, socially responsible way uh, to even interact with your community uh, in terms of other services that are available or your local council or charities you're part of. So I think it's, it's a nice way to, uh, to let your community know that, that it's a two-way relationship and it's a, and it's a good way to, to feel part of the community you're in. Members of the community, of course, use social media. Like we're all members of the community and we use social media all the time. Um, and I think it's hard for practitioners when they get positive um, responses from their patients um, who are very grateful for the services that they've provided um, and they want to put those up on their website um, to, um, to demonstrate that they're a good practitioner um, and they're, they're um, appreciated by their patients. Uh, unfortunately, what that does is, or what it can do, is mislead the public because, of course, you're just putting the positive um, comments up on the website and also those comments are from an individual um, with it, that it's their own opinion of their service. There's no background about what the treatment was that was provided or how it was provided. Um, it's just a personal opinion. And as members of the public, we can have personal opinions about anything, lots of things. Um, but if you put, as a health practitioner, if you put that on your website, then you're, you're um, condoning that, that singular approach to assessing your um, treatment um, capabilities. Um, and um, and that's, that's misleading, can be very misleading. Um, so those are the, when it's on your website, um, the guidelines make it really clear you have a responsibility as a health practitioner um, to, to remove those, not use them in that way. 
what people say in their own blogs and their own social media is entirely up to them. But you never take off that hat of being a health professional um, and the trust that underpins um, your relationship with your patients sits with you all the time. Um, you can never take that hat off and say, I'm a free individual here. You're, whatever you're saying, you're saying as a health practitioner, and that goes to your professional responsibility in your relationship with your patients. So these testimonials, that's really what you're talking about. Ruan, can you tell us why they're problematic? I think the, the national law is very clear that testimonials are prohibited. And when we're talking about testimonials, that word just has its ordinary meaning. So it's just a positive statement about a regulated health service in this situation um, that's used in advertising or, or a recommendation. Um, and for all the reasons uh, that Anne has mentioned, uh, testimonials are are inherently one person's opinion and so can be a little bit risky. Um, and when we're talking about testimonials also, it's about whether or not they refer to a clinical aspect of care. So on a practice's website, some people might leave comments about how accessible the practice is, how friendly the reception staff is. That's fine. And that's and that's just encourage, you know, that's 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 not a problem from a testimonial point of view. Um, but when it's talking about a symptom or the reason someone sought the treatment, um, what treatment they were offered or uh, what diagnosis they received, the outcome of the treatment or the procedure that they had, and then potentially also tying that into the skills of the person that performed that procedure or provided that treatment, they're the testimonials that are prohibited. Um, and as Anne's mentioned, one person's experience of whether or not that treatment went well for them uh, does not really inform another as to whether or not that would be right for them. And that goes back to what Dominic was saying about that conversation, the importance of that individual patient conversation. Um, so it's really just being aware that they are prohibited and, um, and, and not, not to use them in their own advertising and not to call them something else uh, that you think might get over the, um, the prohibition as well. Generally, our members are really quite accepting of that. Um, it then plays into then how that interacts then with other websites that are outside of their control and how sometimes that, that can be a challenge where they can't promote themselves through positive testimonials, but some practices and practices feel like any disgruntled member of the public can go on a third-party site and make negative comments. So should we talk about those sort of third-party websites? Do you want to explain what those are, uh, Ruan? Yeah, so third-party sites are basically just anything outside the practitioner or the practice's control. So within their control are things like their own Facebook page, um, and so they need to turn the review function off on their, that page because that's something that they can control. Um, but they can't control reviews on any of the booking sites. Um, Health Engine, White Coat are some common examples of that. Um, any of the discussion forums, um, you know, we see a lot of those in particular specialties. Some of those patient discussion forums are quite popular. And then also some of your common third-party sites that we get a lot of queries about, things like Google, RateMDs, uh, and some of those other general review platform sites increasingly something like Yelp is, is making a bit more of a, uh, of a uh, getting a bit more of a profile in Australia. In my experience as well I think that practitioners have just often not thought about this issue, not thought about their use of social media, not thought about the fact that it actually um, might bias um, their 
their practice. And so we've found through audits that um, when often when it's pointed out to practitioners, um, they they understand and they're compliant about removing the vast majority remove that material very quickly. Um, so I would just encourage people, there are really good guidelines on the website, um, on the APRA website. I would really encourage people to look at the advertising guidelines. There's lots of examples so that you can actually work through the examples um, and make sure you're compliant. So then that takes that worry off your shoulders. I really encourage people to do that. I think it's also worth noting or mentioning that a lot of these practices or businesses outsource their advertising to third-party organisations. And a lot of these third-party organisations are not familiar with the guidelines for for advertising a health service. Um, Ultimately, the responsibility uh, lies with the practitioners. So I would encourage uh, any any practitioners that are using third parties to, to do this for them to ensure that they are familiar with the guidelines uh, and, to, and to audit it yourself to make sure that you're following them. So what about things like can practitioners offer prizes or loyalty rewards or other things like that? I think this comes back to what we were talking to about earlier in terms of biasing the decision-making of the, of the patient. And, uh, and if you're offering a, a prize or, or a reward for, for seeking or having a certain or particular treatment done, uh, that does raise some concerns around whether or not that was the best treatment modality for that patient. So there are things you can do which are sort of preventative or, or encouraging best behaviours like um, giving a toothbrush to a new patient and things like that. You know, that, that promotes excellent behaviour and is not biasing the outcome. Uh, it may, in fact, pre- prevent disease in the future. But when you, when you start looking at, at, at motivating or encouraging particular uh, procedures, it, it starts to get into the, the realm of, of affecting the potential health outcomes of the patient. And I'd also encourage if you are unsure about the guidelines or how they apply to you to seek advice from uh, your professional association or your indemnity insurer uh, and, um, and to know what you're doing before you put your advertising up there. Are you enjoying this? You might enjoy listening to one of our other podcast episodes. How about Professor Val Braithwaite on the importance of trust? Much of a, a regulatory task, if you're steering the flow of events in a, in a new direction, is making people aware of what's happening, give them confidence, motivate them to make the change, because often it is inconvenient, um, and then making sure they have the pathways to achieving that change. Subscribe to Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk now about the term, what we call holding out. Can anyone call themselves a doctor or a chiropractor or a psychologist? Doctor itself is not a protected title, but there are a number of protected titles in the legislation. Um, If someone is going to call themselves a doctor, because of the community's assumption that that means a medical practitioner, it's important to uh, explicitly state what sort of doctor you are. So if it's someone who has a PhD, they are entitled to call themselves a doctor, but they then need to actually confirm what their actual profession or what their work is after that. Um, And the guidelines are are really clear on how that should be done with some really useful examples. In addition to that, there are a number of protected titles 
for the different uh, types of practitioner. And then additionally, a number of specialties that can only be used in certain circumstances, again, protected by those legis legislative provisions. And those are listed uh, quite clearly for each of the different relevant boards. Can anyone provide some examples of how irresponsible advertising can have serious consequences for patients? What we um, um, often see in advertising is people using the word um, specialist or specialised um, in general advertising. So, um, you know, I specialise in um, treating young children or I specialise in um, in working um, with uh, people with sports injuries, um, that use of specialised, um, which implies to the public that you have additional qualifications, um, ad additional knowledge, expertise. So I think you have to be really careful of um, the impression that you're giving to the general public about your level of expertise. Um, and qualifications. And we also generally, uh, even, you know, any sort of use of the word special is, is generally best to avoid. And it's a really good example of where taking a step back and thinking about what fact you're trying to convey. So if you've got a number of years of experience or you have focused your practice in a particular area, those might be better ways of expressing that extra level of experience rather than trying to imply a, you know, a, yeah, whether it's a special interest or actual a specialty because then you might then find yourself uh, on the wrong side of the specialist title and the protected titles legislation. In a general sense, if you can imagine that the fundamental aspect of the doctor-patient relationship or health practitioner-client-consumer relationship is uh, communication and that exchange of information so that they can seek treatment. If it's starting off from a, a misleading position of uh, them having walked into the clinic from seeing something in the advertising, that trust is automatically undermined. And so if, if a patient's expectations are not met, that can lead to increased complaints, uh, disgruntled patients, uh, negative using their advertising or their social media against them in terms of negative comments. Um, and a, a simple situation that might just be a misunderstanding from the start actually can snowball into a much bigger problem. So let's shift to talk about what are the possible regulatory consequences. For example, if you're a practitioner who is found to have been using deceptive or inappropriate advertising, what compliance and enforcement action can the boards take? So there are a range of, um, of tools open um, in the national law um, to address um, irresponsible advertising. Um, the way that it's tackled, as I mentioned before, in the first instance is to give the, the, the practitioner the opportunity to, um, to remove their advertising, to amend um, their approach to advertising. Um, that's, that's obviously in the public's best interest to get that happening quickly and for that person to realise um, that that's not appropriate and that changes their practice in the longer term. Um, there are, then there's a stepped approach um, to um, dealing with that advertising 
Um, if that practitioner decides not to comply, then um, the board might take more firmer action um, and it can result in things like um, their uh, advertising being removed altogether. Um, it can go further than that if it's felt by the board um, that the practitioner um, has uh, is is behaving in an unprofessional um, way. Um, it can go further than that and there might be um, conditions put on their registration. So it can become quite serious and some of these matters end up in a panel or a tribunal in court. Um, so um, there's a stepped approach which is about trying to um, educate the practitioner and protect the public um, as quickly as possible um, and, um, and always protection of the public is our, first, uh, is our first goal. That's the first thing we think about. So what do you think responsible advertising looks like in the future in this ever-changing space? When I reflect on the last 10 years, there's been so many technological advances and health professionals really try to be upstanding citizens in their community and the vast majority of them want to do the right thing and inform their patients uh, in ways and to improve their health. And what I'm excited about with the future is these technologies aren't new anymore and we're learning how to use them and we're learning how to interact with our audience. So with the new guidelines coming out and with that desire to be better and do better, um, I'm really looking forward to uh, having platforms and ways to communicate with our patients in in more responsible uh, and informative ways. Mm. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how new technologies facilitate better communication and how they influence responsible advertising. So I want to thank my guests today, Anne Burgess, Ruan Brell, and Dominic Awad for bringing their knowledge and their years of experience to this important topic today. It has really highlighted why advertising for health services is regulated and the importance of understanding what the issues and the consequences are for all of us. So do take a look at the OPERA website for those recently revised advertising guidelines. We'll put a link in the notes for this episode. If you have a concern about advertising, please do let us know via the OPERA website. If you have any feedback or any questions, please email communications at opera.gov.au. And to hear more episodes of our podcast, please subscribe to Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts or just search for Taking Care on the Opera website. Thanks for listening.